0: Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen.
1: On this week's episode of the Drop Time Report, we're going to have on Doug Benefield. Doug Benefield is the owner of Illinois Connection in Pike and Brown County, Illinois. Uh, He is an outfitter uh, that specializes in hunting hunting. Uh, bow hunting, I'll say, big whitetails. He offers gun hunts as well. Um, But today, we're not only going to talk about, you know, outfitting and what hunters should look for uh, when they're booking a hunt. So let's say you're headed to the Harrisburg show and you're going to kick the tires and you've decided to spend some money on a whitetail hunt. Doug talks about the questions you should ask outfitters. Uh, But first, we're going to talk about a buck, Uh, that kind of became legendary at Illinois Connection. He was called the Double Drop Tine. And in the end, no one ever harvested the Double Drop Tine. But he was a very unique buck uh, that created quite a bit of social media buzz. And Doug's going to tell the story of that buck and how he got away. They figure he was 7 or 8 years old uh, the last time that they saw him. But before we get Doug on the show... I'd like to thank my sponsors. Title sponsor, Redneck Blinds. If you're in the market for a blind, check out their fiberglass blinds. They also have some amazing um, soft-sided blinds. My favorite, the Gilly Blind. Fourth Arrow Camera Arms. If you're into filming your hunt, check out Fourth Arrow Camera Arms. Wind Scent. Um, They are the makers of vaporized deer scent technology. It actually turns urine into a vapor, and when it heats it up, uh, it's been tested and shown uh, to really travel a long distance, and deer can smell it much further away than urine that you pour on the ground. Morel targets, they're high roller targets, pretty awesome. Huntworth clothing, if you need some new hunting clothing and you don't want to break the bank, check out Huntworth. Pine Ridge archery, makers of the Nitro Vane. Lucky Buck Mineral, Grim Reaper broadheads, Schaefer performance archery, Illinois Connection Outfitters, the Outdoorsman's makers of great backpacks and tripods for glass and critters. And Wilderness Athlete, if you want to shed a few pounds, check out WildernessAthlete.com. My favorite product is their Hydrate and Recover drink. under DROP10 at checkout and receive a discount. Now let's go ahead and get Doug on the show. Welcome to the drop Time Report, Doug. How are you today? Excellent, Tracy. How about you, sir? Oh, staying alive, my friend. I'm sure uh, the season is winding down there in Illinois, and and, uh, it's probably run you ragged a little bit. Uh, How's the season went?
0: Uh, We've had a very good season. Um, I mean, as usual, uh, this is our 19th, and you seem to think that you know it all, but (laughs) every year, Mother Nature, she throws you a different curveball. But it's been a very good season collectively, some of our larger calendar deer that we want to make someone a superstar out of and really publicize—they've uh, evaded us. Uh, once they get to five and six year old, which we did get a handful there, they, the level of difficulty increases. Um, so uh, they're still out there, but uh, you know, collectively, collectively, like I've said, it's been a great season
1: so what happens uh with those older deer you know obviously you're posting those pictures on the on uh, your website during summer and they're pretty regular showing up on trail camera then all of a sudden boom they're gone you would think with the amount of ground you you guys hunt thousands of acres of unpressured ground you know the everyone thinks that oh it's you know you're hunting in a park so to speak but they're still wild deer And they they just disappear, you know, come October, huh?
0: Oh, it it is amazing. Um, You know, we have, uh, you know, for instance, I've got a six by five, obviously. You know, he's six on one side, five on the other. I know this year he's six years old. And for a year, from year to year to year to year, he gives us velvet pictures. One, one or two o'clock in the morning, November picture, and then he's a ghost, That is it. And this year, he has given us many velvet pictures, many daylight photo pictures in November. So that kind of gives you the idea of what they say is true. As they age, their circle gets smaller. Typically, that's what you anticipate and that's what you hope. But this deer has still eluded us for the most part of the season again. So now, I'm thinking this year... Is possibly an access issue. I think he's watching us coming and going because he's made himself, um, you know, presentable on camera. But we still can just—it's smart. It just absolutely smart.
1: It just goes to show you—you know—even on unpressured ground, uh, there's a certain amount of pressure, obviously. And if if a buck gets that old, he's obviously had some close encounters along the way, and he becomes wise.
0: Very, very wise. Uh, That is true. And I think really at that age, um, I I don't know, I can probably um, give you an example as the way you were when you were younger, just like I was. I mean, I just turned 50 and look at the activity. I mean, we were just out, you know, shooting basketball, playing football, just running the gauntlet. But as you age, eh, that's okay. (laughs) Sit in front of the TV, have a nice (laughs) evening, let's read a book. You know what I'm saying? So And I kind of think that's what these deer do. I mean, they know the game. Uh, They have become extremely large, extremely fat. Of course, they lose a lot of weight in that brief period that they are running the gauntlet. But I think for the most time, uh, they're magnetized to the earth. They've got white belly down. And uh, they just know based on all of the other movements. So I think what they can do is strategically stay fat, stay low, early season, all of a sudden, these young guys, these 20 year old 30-year-olds, if we equate it to us, uh, you know, one- and 2 year old three-year-olds, they're running around. And once they see the activity increase, they make their presence, they do their deeds, and then they go right back down. And then once it happens again for the second period or third period, depending upon how the rut comes and goes as it does, um, I think that's what they do. They lay low, let the activity around them increase. It's time. Let's take a peek we let's go right back down. I mean, I really think that's what it is. And then from there, I think it's just a little bit of luck, uh, some camera surveillance to possibly catch him in a period just briefly. Um, and, and maybe you can capitalize on it. I mean, you would think for the most part, they're going to make a mistake once or twice. It's just whether you're winning the lottery and you're timed and you're in that spot at the time he makes that mistake.
1: You know, that brings up a buck that kind of became famous at Illinois Connection called the Double Drop Time. And, you know, it's just like you're talking. He he became old, and you personally had a history with him, and many of your hunters had a history with him. But he never was confirmed dead, never was killed. Why don't you kind of tell the story of that buck? It is one of my favorite Illinois Connection bucks. Not Certainly not the largest buck ever. You know, seen on camera at Illinois Connection, but he had some amazing characteristics. And so everybody loved him and everybody wanted to kill him.
0: Uh, No doubt. Um, Yes, that was one of our calendar deer. Um, Was it our largest deer that we've been after? Absolutely not. But characteristically, probably the rarest. Um, I mean, to have double drop times, you just do not see that too often. It's kind of like extremely long brow times uh it's just one of those rare qualities. So uh you're right. Uh he was a photogenic deer, he was a sought-after deer, but he was extremely, extremely smart. Um he came into the scene years ago and uh just all of a sudden boom early you know velvet photos, September, excuse me, August, July, August, into September, there he was, one single large drop time. Um, just a big, uh, I think it was a nine pointer at the first year he popped in the scene, uh, and he was traveling with a 170 inch 10. Uh, naturally he wasn't as big as a 10, but he was just, he had a drop time. Um, we never seen that deer from September until all the way down. I think it was second muzzleload season. Uh, we had a hunter from South Carolina, the deer walked out to present himself and he was broken. Uh, you know, the course, the hunter had known what the deer was off of our trail camera gallery, but he was broken. Uh, the drop time side was completely stamped off. Um, so, you know, one of my hunters did, like I say, recognize him. So late season, I was in doing some doe management on a standing beam plot and that deer walked out in front of me and it was amazing how much larger he was. There was a three-year-old, probably 140s deer out there with him and 130s deer, And he literally was, body-wise, about two feet longer. His color uh, was just way different. And he just looked old then. I mean, he had a big chest, low in the hips, and his camp as he went across the field was just beautiful to watch. I mean, when you get aged deer into a food source versus younger deer, you can really see the twos, the threes, the fours, the five, the sixes. Just their demeanor, just their actions. I mean, it was just beautiful to be able to watch him, even though broken. Uh, So I watched him make his walk out across the field. He ate. He followed a fence line, and boom, that was all i seen him for the year. Um, You thought he would have been regular. Where he wintered, I do not know. We did not find the good side. Of course, you know, the broken side. I I do not know where he wintered. And we had all the food in the world. How old do you think he was at that point? I think at that point, really looking at him, I honestly think he might have been a six-year-old Tracy. Okay, huge, huge body, even late. Just the color—he uh, had the color of an Auburn. He had like an Auburn hue to him, mixed in with some with some salt. He, he just had that look. He wasn't your typical dark black deer that when you really know a lot of times our older deer just get really really, extremely dark in color and then you get some of the aged deer that just have a total different color they almost like gray into their color which gives them that hue but anyway um you know so we never found a shed the following year he popped on camera and he had double drops i mean boom which you just do not see that, and and he was and they just, were
1: perfectly symmetrical as well, you know it's important to point that out i mean they were i mean each side looked like the other side, they were twin sides, oh
0: yeah, absolutely and 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 again, he wasn't the largest deer ever, I mean he was probably a hundred and sixties deer, uh, but just the mass and just the character and just the drops and in the moment we posted his picture. I guess you do not realize, um, you know, the actual rarity of an animal like that with double drops, but I started getting phone calls that was absolutely amazing. You know, people are like, hey, Doug, I'll pay you $10,000 to come and hunt this deer. <laughs> wow. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was just unreal. I mean, you know, people were looking at him almost like, you know, what you would have if you had a pen raised deer. Uh, but yet he was free range and he was wild and they were willing to come do it. But of course, naturally, um, you know, that's not the kind of operation we are. And when I even entertained that. So uh, we had regular trail camera photos, we had regular history of him. And being aged like I think he was, I'm going to say he was seven at the time, he was very regular on camera. I mean, just boom, photo after photo after photo. I mean, he was so photogenic to where. You know, I thought, hey, there's a very good chance we're going to get this deer very quickly, early season on, but (laughs) that's never the case. Uh, So, more or less, our groups of hunters that were coming in, we were just having a a, kind of like a lottery deal. Uh, I'd let all the archers draw out of a hat that were in camp uh, on the early season hunts and. The, the one, two, and three top drawers or whatever, how I did it. And then they would go out on the deck and just a free range archery competition against the three who would, you know, get a chance to hunting. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. making it just fair for everyone. So we'd have a shoot and off. And fun. Whoever. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And whoever was closest to the dot, um, uh, got to climbing the stand and hunting if we had the right wind. And, uh, fortunately we did have the right wind, uh, a couple of the days and he did. He came in, made himself visible, uh, and just due to hunter error, uh, we didn't get him. I mean, the first guy in that had a chance, literally had the deer at 25 yards. Um, he made a move, made a noise, and the deer made him, which, you know, still early, still not pressured. He he didn't leave the area. He still maintained himself on camera, so we continued to have the fun with the uh target competitions and the drawings and next thing you know another one of the winners had an opportunity again and um this time this deer was had came in and was um working a scrape and there was a couple of does in front of him and while he's sitting here looking at the buck uh, he just lost focus on the two does and the does made him so you know the does acting squarely, you know let him out of there and so, more or less, being bumped twice, then he he got really, really wise. He knew that something was up. So he gave us two opportunities, and neither of the opportunities we were unable to seal the deal. Yeah. And um, and then from there, he just did like a seven-year-old, six-year-old, wherever his age exactly was was. He then became nocturnal. Uh, all the photos from then we uh, were at nighttime, and then he disappeared on me. He disappeared on me for an entire month. Um, and then he showed himself, I think, at like 1 a.m. in the morning in the november November uh, evening, or in you know, a November morning. And then the next thing you know, I hear rumor that the next-door neighbors, just the craziest story you've ever heard, as always, uh, you know, a hunter with the wrong ammo and a gun that supposedly the scope was off uh, had wounded him. And uh, in the process, uh, the, a botched track and all of the above. So we were thinking potentially that uh, our deer could be laying wounded somewhere uh, and dead. Uh, but, um, you know, as it as it came to be, uh, Tracker John, of course, that is uh, housed here and been working closely with us for 12, 13 years now, he went in more or less just to just see if there was a dead deer laying in there and carcass searched and boom. Lo and behold, John found one of his sheds.
1: Ain't that amazing? And one of his
0: sheds, oh yeah, found one of his sheds six weeks later, I think it was. So that you know, gave us a glimmer of hope that he was still alive. And uh, unfortunately, just because we didn't have enough acreage um, to continue to search, the other shed was never found. So we did find one side, but that was uh, that was the saga. Uh That was the end of the drop time. He never popped on camera and... You know, I like to think that um, he probably, uh, you know, lived his life out just more or less with age because we did not harvest him.
1: Yeah, you, you think in today's world of trail cameras and highly managed ground that, you know, every big buck's going to meet the maker either by an arrow or a bullet, but a lot of them slip through. Mm-hmm, hmm
0: And there is no doubt in my mind, 100%, this deer slipped through And and I'm guessing his age. I mean, he might have been eight. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, We had a buck here just, you know, here just on lodge ground that at eight and a half years old, he was an eight-pointer that came onto the scene. So between me and the neighbors, we had eight years collectively between us all of his sheds. And on his eighth year, he would have scored uh, you know, basically just guessing his width when you're using, you know, like you put the sheds on top of your kneecap. He would have, as a clean 182, 3, or 4, just guessing his width. And he had one little piece of trash, and that was at eight years.
1: Wow. Hard to believe, an
0: eight-year-old F as an eight-pointer. And we harvested the deer the following year. Uh, he was nine and a half years old, and he officially scored 214 and six-eighths. Still. As a mainframe eight, but at nine and a half years, he put his largest rack on. His bases jumped to 11 and six-eighths, and he had kickers, three- and four-inch little blades, just every like a cactus at the bases. Long brows, 30-plus-inch beams, 16-inch twos, but at nine and a half years old, and it was unbelievable. His body did not look big, uh, but his teeth looked like an old pipe smoker. They were charred. Yeah. They were black. They were fat and uh, inside his belly he had whole acorns. So he ran the gauntlet for nine and a half years. and of course, just defied the odds, and then produced his largest rack, which is basically against anything that probably any biologist would ever tell you. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, amazing, and and we have this discussion amongst us and the gods all the time. You are correct. In today's world and the technology and the equipment that is available and out there for you to use, literally these deer run a gauntlet. Mm-hmm. They run a gauntlet on a daily basis. So when they make it to five, six, seven years old, it is just really, really stunning.
1: Now let's talk about the the outfitting side. You know, you're in Pike County, Brown County, Illinois. Obviously it's one of the more famous places to kill big bucks a lot of guys, uh, you know, go to that area of the world every year and, and book a hunt. And you hear great stories, you know, from happy hunters. And you, and we've all heard the nightmares. Uh, you have a pretty amazing lodge and set up there, and you're hunting on thousands of acres. Uh, when a guy is walking through the Harrisburg show, when he's walking through a deer and turkey expo, what are the questions you think he should ask to avoid... Uh, ended up booking a hunt with a bad outfitter.
0: Uh, there's probably an entire gamut of you know questions that you need to ask, and really, as an outfitter, I, you know, just touch base and I'll stray off the question a little bit and then I will give you the answers. Um, I mean, just it, it, honestly, what we do is not rocket science. Uh, I mean, really, uh, it takes a lot of knack, and you do have a, have to have a lot of professionalism in it but the goal here is to supply a hunter with a a quality hunt from the beginning of the season to the end of the season and to achieve that the number one question is is acreage how much land do you have and that's the problem that most outfitters have they do not have enough land to sustain the pressure or the harvest that's the Mm -hmm. number one problem with Mm -hmm. most I mean, because if you ever look at the history of some of these outfitters, uh, they go in, they blaze their property early, and then at the end of the season, there's nothing left. Uh, I mean, you know, either they killed everything or they ran everything off. So sure. it's being able to, you know, play chess. You no know, twenty moves out before you come in for the harvest. Before you come in to kill for the kill, and you know, so you know, big thing is acreage. Uh, the next thing is stand sets. Um, you know, the next thing is what type of stands, I mean, do you have equipment from all winds? Uh, I mean, uh, different, uh, prevailing winds, uh, you know, south, north, east, west. I mean, I'll have guys laugh. They'll come to a huge food source. We might have say a actual strategic food plot and they're like, my goodness, there stands all the way around it. Absolutely. You know, for any type of wind, we can come in unannounced, uh, you know, and hunt the prevailing wind at the time and potentially have a successful harvest. Uh, you know the other thing. You know, ask uh, do these do these outfitters have well maintained food sources? Of course. You know, luckily enough, we're in the area in Illinois where it's heavily undulated, up and down, mixed timber, deep CRP creek bottoms, and then agriculture. I mean, our ground is more or less fifty fifty, where most of the state of Illinois is pancake flat with no timber. So yeah. we have the densities, we have the timber, we have the structure to hold the deer. And then, of course, we have the agriculture. Of course, we have corn, we have beans, and then we have an extensive food plot program. I mean, year-round. Uh, one of my staff actually owns Whitetail Select. Um, so we've got an eight-clover blend plot that we maintain, and then, of course, coming in the fall and you know, producing the stuff that's you know, increasing the palatability of the deer with the— uh, purple top turnips, the tillage radish, the oats, uh, the winter wheats and ryes, and things like that that can can, can continually maintain the browse. Um, you know, one of the problems I see in everything is how is the agriculture maintained in and around your ground? Uh, do the farmers come in and harvest it? And due to farming practices, do they immediately rip and turn and till? I mean, you can have the most beautiful land in the world, the most beautiful timber in the world, but it does you no good with no food. Uh, you know, so does that outfitter have a good working arrangement with his farmers to keep his ground, you know, unmaintained for the moment until the harvest. So there's a lot of things like that. Uh, next question is uh, how many guys do you run a year? Um, you know, for us, we do not run a lot of guys throughout the year, but when we do run anything in consistency, say our large camps is targeted at when it's at its highest, you know, chance. Uh, or the, you know, the, I mean, for instance, during the you know, rut the seasons, during the rut that's right. When they're, I mean, I have no reason to be on my ground doing more harm, say in the middle of October when there's a full moon. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just because at the time we still do not have a bulk amount of deer on their feet due to uh, does and estrus. So why would you bring a big camp in? Number one, the success is going to be low. Um, uh-huh and you're, you're you're contaminating the ground, you're doing more harm than good. So, I mean, strategically, you know, those are things that a guy should look at. Uh, you know, know the moons. You know, does this outfitter pay attention to the moons? Is he, you know, privy enough to even speak the language? You know, certain things like that. Those are telltale signs. Um, I know you hear guys say, you know, as long as the hunting's good, I'll stay in a pup tent. I could really care less about the mills. Ah, uh, yes and no. That may be true with some, but for the most part, just a full-blown package. You know, I hear guys tell me they book, and you know, say this outfitter's got an amazing place or whatever, and they next thing you know, he tells me he had a cot or a mattress laying in the closet, uh, and there was not enough food for the hunters. So every bit of that, you know, guys should be questioning, you know, the numbers, the ground, the acreage, the stands, uh, the usage of the trail cameras, um, you know. Does he work a lot of trade shows? Does he have a lot of clientele that is a repeat? Repeat clientele is a telltale sign that this is a quality outfit. Um, success ratios. You know, I'm not always 100% just hard numbered on the success ratio. To me, it's the shot opportunity is what should be focused on. Because really, I mean, if you can maintain a 30 to 40% success average, you are way 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 above the curve. And yeah. you know, and I can elaborate because really what you're looking at is a shot opportunity. Our shot opportunity at a minimum quality whitetail can be 70 to 80 plus percent yearly, but it's just whether or not that hunter closes the deal or chooses to close the deal. I mean, I have guys that come in this camp that pass 140, 50, 60 and some 70-inch deer and larger, uh, just because they know that there is a calendar deer in the area and they're willing to potentially gamble with that tag. So realistically, what I really need to focus in on is what is the shot opportunity. Success, a lot of times, is all in the hunter's hand
1: and i think some of those numbers can be manipulated you know by outfitters and that really one of the reasons i wanted to do this interview is you know i've i've hunted i've been in the hunting industry for 20 years i've hunted all over the country and if if you've hunted with outfitters enough you've probably been screwed by one and there's a lot of guys who save their nickels and go on a hunt and end up you know very disappointed um and i'm sure you've heard you know plenty of the stories over the years in, and an outfitter should always provide references, don't you think, of guys who've not only been successful, but you know, guys that did go home empty-handed. Oh, for sure. You need to have both sides of the coin uh, readily available. Um,
0: our reference list actually probably has more unsuccessful hunters on it than it does success, just because I would rather have a new clientele get the full story as to why he didn't have a deer and would he go back you know based on you know whether he harvested or did not I mean I mean easily enough I could throw a hundred references on there and every one of them had to the hunt of a lifetime but that doesn't give you the true story so sure. you know, it, it needs to be to me 75 percent more of the unsuccessful side just because they can relate to the whole story and, and you know when these guys, really what they have to, you know, what they're looking at when they're walking around booking a hunt or whatever, um, they're they're not buying a deer. If they're wanting to buy a deer, then they need to go to a fenced operation. Uh, But these guys, what they're doing is, is they're hoping to buy an opportunity. You know, you would not book an elk hunt in Georgia. So demographically, you place yourself where the genetics are, where the herd is, where the whitetail are, and then... You know, you hope to buy an opportunity. I mean, if everyone would have that mentality, they go to a good operation, um, they're on vacation. They just happen to be hunting. And then from there, if they shoot a buck or they harvest a buck, that's just a bonus. That's just the icing on the cake. Uh, If those guys maintain that mentality and find an operation like that, that's a successful hunt. Because typically, it's the camp, it's the camaraderie, it's the fellowship, and then the bonus. Because these guys that come in and put the pressure on themselves to where oh my goodness, i got to kill a buck. What are we doing? Day one, day two, day three. Uh, there, there's an energy, there's an electricity, uh, there's a stress level that they put on themselves to where it hurts them. I mean, actually, it'll be to the point to where these guys will be making mistakes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what what can a guy hope for? You know, they're going to Pike County, Illinois. Obviously, they're going there because where they live, probably like where I'm at in Michigan or some people, you have a lot of people from down south and Georgia and, and Florida and those places. What can they hope to see and encounter? I mean, I know they can encounter a, a 200-incher and, and a boon and Crockett buck, and you guys consistently produce large deer, not always 200-inchers, but every year there's a Booner killed, it seems. Um You know, what can a guy hope to encounter? Well,
0: um, a mature animal for sure, but, you know, really what you got to look at is what time of the year. Uh, you know, so based on the times of the year when, the, when a hunter would be here in camp, of course, the encounters can be different. Uh, for instance, you know, if a guy's coming in um, in an early season hunt, he would imagine or should know that the mornings are going to be really, really slow. Because in most cases, you know, a mature whitetail does not have a lot of reason to be on his feet other than to eat. So the mornings can be a little slower, but in the evenings, bachelored bucks, um, you know, own food sources, fresh cut crops, you know, green, you know, all of the above. And then, of course, as the season moves, you get to the rut, the mornings are eventful, the evenings are eventful. So they kind of combat each other. But, you know, what a guy can typically see is, again, based on the times... Uh, I mean, I've had multiple, multiple hunters before go out and see three, four, five mature deer. When I say mature deer, uh, I mean, we could be talking 140 and up. I mean, you just, honestly, you just never know. I mean, it is so amazing. Uh, Guys that can come here on a rut hunt, um, on a rut hunt, you can have your level of difficulty there due to the lock. We can have three days of long faces, everyone walking around. They're only seeing year-old, two-year-old deer and an occasional three. And I'm like, look, guys, you know, these mature deer, they've got a doe somewhere. You know, they're tending her. It could be two, three days. And and then, boom, all of a sudden, in a day and a half, the entire camp, you think they won the lottery. Uh, Oh, goodness, I just seen a 170. I just seen a 190. I just seen six different bucks chasing one doe and oh my God, they were all 150 about him. And so you, you just wonder where they are, but, but still, I mean, these are wild deer, you know, the guys that uh, flip on the outdoor channel or sportsman channel and, you know, and watch these TV shows. that were like, uh, Hey, I'm here in Illinois today and, and we're going to hunt this river bottom. And they slam some horns together and boom, here comes a buck and they shoot it, you know, easily enough that can happen, but also, I mean, there can be some time invested. I mean, these are older deer; they're wise deer, and there's a level of difficulty. Uh, But typically, like what you're saying, you know, I know I've got guys that come down from Maine, and Connecticut, and Vermont, and these guys will hunt hard, daylight to dark, and they'll come in, and I'll be like, "Hey, Bob, what you see today? Oh my God, it was the most incredible day ever. I've seen five deer, and I'm like, five? Only five? I'm like, wow, that's a little slow. What do you mean?" You know, I'll hunt daylight to dark my entire season in Vermont and only see one deer. And, you know, so, and then the next day this guy goes out and he sees 40 deer and, you, you know, you I mean, he's so ecstatic, it just blows his mind. Uh, but, you know, a guy can definitely come out and expect Tracy in a five day hunt and, and expect to see multiple mature deer. Mm-hmm. It's just whether or not he can close the deal. On that multiple mature deer, because we're predominantly archery.
1: You got to do it. We yeah. can put him in the driver's seat. You got to steer it. <laughs> now, how much ground do you guys have between what you own and lease?
0: Um, honestly, I do not know the exact acreage because yearly uh, I'll add a piece, take a piece, pull a piece. I we're collectively between sixteen and 17,000 acres.
1: Yeah. So obviously there's pieces of ground that. You know, aren't super pressured, and there's other pieces that see more hunting pressure just depending on the year.
0: Absolutely, because every track based on the timber, uh, the acorn producing trees, the crops, the rotation, the food plots yes, every farm hunts differently. Some farms can be hunted early, uh, some farms do not need to be hunted until late. Some farms you can hunt them the entire season, they're just that type of farm. Um, matter of fact, we've got a farm right now south of us uh, that the farmer is actually in cutting the crops right now. He's shelling corn. Okay. So, so just imagine, here's a farm that has 300 acres that has been standing for the entire year, 55, 60 lock-ons, and we're more or less finished for the year probably 50, 60 lock homes on this piece of property, lock homes, ladders, houses, and everything that have not even been visited yet.
1: Okay. (laughs) And just like that, it changes. Yeah. Now, now that piece is, you know, off the, off the table.
0: That's right. That's right. That piece is off the table. Uh, We got a late January hunt coming up and we're going to put a handful of guys in there. I mean, that's that, again, that same aspect of being able to supply a quality hunt from the beginning to the end, having the ground. Uh, we probably have fourteen to 1,500 stand sites. That would be lock homes, ladders, uh, redneck shooting houses, blinds, uh, hay bales, all of the above, everything. And yearly, uh, Tracy, I'm probably not exaggerating when I say we have 250 to 350 stands that never have a warm body in them yearly.
1: Wow. Now, just never get to them or
0: never need them. And it's so funny when we go in in March and April to prep our equipment and winterize it and do everything or, you know, to get it ready for the, you know, the, you know, in between seasons, (laughs) <laughs> we'll go into an area and it will be beat to pieces it like a bull elk's men and they're ripping the timber up and you're like whoo we might should have hunted this one
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's maybe the one downside of having that much ground I guess
0: it is it is the now, actual downside to it because yeah you cannot hunt or see at all it's impossible
1: yeah now in closing let's talk about the late season you know everybody wants to hunt during the rut but you do every year have a you know a late season hunt i'm sure many outfitters do and and you know some outfitters offer a deal on those late season hunts and and the bucks are back into their regular patterns um that could be a great hunt as well right yes absolutely it is um what's that tracing from sorry yeah that's i'm uh, just gonna say you know the late the late season hunt can be you know just as good as other times of the year correct Oh absolutely One hundred percent correct uh as for me um
0: it is my my most favorite time of the year uh because number one uh, the temperatures are at their coolest uh the conditions um can be a little more brutal, but you've taken a lot you put a lot you've taken a lot away from the deer and when I say you've taken a lot away from the deer. It's not that his senses are lower, it's just his survival at his highest. Uh, They lose so much weight during the rut. I mean, we'll have some of these deer, honestly, I've seen them drop 75 to 100 pounds. I mean, just really small. Oh, yeah, it's just crazy how they can run so hard. Uh, So at this time of the year, or that time of the year, their belly is their worst enemy. I mean, they're looking for calories. Uh, they're looking for carbohydrates. They're looking for anything that will bulk them back up and get them through the winter. So more or less, that sensibility of them drops to a degree. They, they can make themselves visible in the daylight hours multiple times in the day. But you've got to strategically be careful with these food sources. Uh, we will not hunt any of these food sources in the morning. Typically, we'll try to access them by midday Uh, That way you're only bumping very few deer uh, because they're so close to it. I mean, there's no sense in traveling a quarter or a half a mile. Uh, I mean, they're literally feet to uh, 100 yards or so, a couple hundred yards at the worst. Um, But, you know, the the level of difficulty that imposes on you at times is the amount of eyes. I mean, literally I'll have guys on some of these lake hunts have 100, 150 deer on them at one time. So if you've got deer in eating in series, you figure – You've got 50 deer with their heads down and 100 with their heads up or 100 down and 50 up uh, you got to be you got to be on your a game it's a World Series situation
1: yeah. you got to be stealthy
0: yeah. uh, It's challenging uh, but a very very big mature deer can be seen every year on this late season hunt which we started I think five years ago we will have a 150 60 70 80 inch deer multiples be seen and be in the area and be on the food source with a hunter on any one given day of this five-day late season hunt we have. It's just whether or not you can close the deal. Sure. Yeah. It is yeah. a lot. It's a lot of fun. And the conditions can be tough. Uh, if you're in an exposed ladder uh, or lock-on or anything, you're bulked up, you're in a heater body suit. Uh, but, of course, and uh, the colder the weather, the better the hunting. So I mean, it's a great time. It is a very, very good time to target a mature animal and again, with today's technology, you can target these feed sources. you can have camera surveillance, and you can know whether or not you've got a really superior mature animal on this food source at the time that you're trying to you know be in there yeah now,
1: now, one last question for all the guys out there who do plant food plots. What has been your uh, greatest success for late season, getting them into the food? What's what's their f- favorite food source? Is it turnips or sugar beets or what do you find? Well, the sugar beets I have not tried yet,
0: honestly, here in Illinois, but I am going to try them next year, believe it or not, because uh, I did hunt before Michigan. That's where my wife is from. Uh, and I know they're very big on the sugar beets. Um, honestly, Tracy, it just depends upon what type of uh, uh, precipitation, you know as far as snow frozen precip- precipitation you may have at the time. I know our late uh turnip plots, radish plots, and everything are incredible on a day where we do not have snow, uh, and of course they're exposed. And, you know, you do, and you have somewhat of a warmer day. When I say warmer day, I'm going to say 30, 40, 50. All of a sudden there's a high, which really doesn't sound too warm, but as you know, you're from up north. Yeah. You know, that's very warm in the winter. So a lot of times they're just like you and I. Uh, I mean, you can only eat a hamburger so many days in a row, and then you need a salad, and then maybe you'll go back to steak. So they change with that too. So late season turnip plots that can be exposed, you know, with no frozen precipitation, can be very good. Um, collectively, our clover plots can be very good. Again, it's on a day where it is slightly warmer, where they're going to go green. Um, and then if you can get a standing corn plot or a standing bean plot to be maintained, uh, when I say maintained, be large enough to sustain the herd uh, with snow, I mean, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, that no that maintain
1: part is probably the tough thing because you're living in a high density area. They can turn a twenty acre field of clover into dirt pretty fast.
0: Oh, absolutely. So it's really, it's really, you know, there's a lot that you got to take into it. So, so the guys that's doing it themselves, that's working their food plots, that last mow on your clover has got to be strategic. You cut it too low, too late. And then you got cooler temperatures come in and frost or whatever, you're basically not gonna have much growth. You know, it is what it is. But again, so there's like a fine line. You cut your clover too high, and then the early season it's not as good because you don't have the young tender growth. So you you gotta try to time a lot of your plots as to when they're planted, when they're mowed based on your deer and your movements and everything like that. And then again, I've um As a matter of fact, case in point, last year, we had one of the worst winters that I can remember. Uh, We had heavy snow come in, and then it melted, uh, and then it freezed, and then it snowed on top of it, and then melted and snowed, and the next thing you know, we got a crust for two months. So my turnip plots, my clover plots, they were useless. They couldn't break through. My bean plots, my corn plots, of course, they didn't last long enough. So the next thing you know, my deer that I normally would have wintering on me, they left. Mm -hmm. I I do not know what they found. Of course, again, Mother Nature, it finds its way. Uh, Did they dig large hub holes out in the woods and find acorns and brassicas and CRPs and grasses and filter strips and things like that? I do not know. But, you know, you encounter some years like that. Unfortunately, due to CWD, and, you know, being in some of the northern states and everything like that, we cannot feed. Uh, yeah. I I'd, I'd love it. I mean, last year, if I could have rolled around with some large alfalfa bales, I'd have kicked alfalfa bales out. And, of course, your herd would have fed just like cattle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know that there's ever a perfect formula yearly to do, uh, but it is a, it's a combined effort. It's just like uh, running any big business. That's the pie. It's just what piece of the pie that you put out there yearly. And um, you've got to do a little bit of everything.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I know uh, you plan on going hunting yourself today, you told me before the interview. So uh, I'm going to let you get off here, and and hopefully you shoot a slammer yourself today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much, Tracy, and I appreciate you giving me a call. Yeah, take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. To learn more about Doug Benefield or Illinois Connection, check out IllinoisBowHunting.com. He does offer one heck of a lodge and an amazing hunting experience. On the next episode, we're going to have on Melissa Bachman, the host of Winchester's Deadly Passion. We're going to highlight her amazing season. Uh, This past season, she was able to kill four whitetails in a seven-day period, and a couple of those were on public land. To learn more about me, visit my website, tracybreen.com, T-R-A-C-Y-B-R-E-E-N.com. That's where people go to book me for wild game dinners. Until the next episode, if you could give me a review on iTunes or Google Play, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day.